Well, good morning, Gateway. Uh, for those visitors who may not know me, my name is Dean Salami. Well, can you guys believe it? We're a week away from Christmas. That got here really quickly, didn't it? Now, um, I want to welcome you today. As it's already been said, this is the third week of our Advent series. And, you know, for the four weeks of Advent lead up to Christmas, we celebrate the, uh, the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we've titled our sermon series, Why Advent? And so for those who may not have been here, I'm going to take a moment for us to just recap what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, and then we're going to just jump into what we, uh, what we have for today. Now, with that being said, let me open us up with prayer. Join me if you would, please. Father God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be able to gather together. Wow, Lord God, this week has flown by. So much has gone on in the world this year. I know some, like me, are tired, we're fatigued. Others, they're suffering with some major issues in life. But when we look at Jesus, we find hope. And this is why we celebrate Christmas, Lord God. And so I ask, Lord God, that you help us to remember what it means I know you have something for your people today, so I ask, Lord, that you would speak loudly and clearly so that we would not miss what you would have us hear. You, Lord God, have all the answers that we need. And so as we open up your word today and we look into the lesson, Lord God, I ask that you would help us to see what's there. Too often, Lord God, we would read your word and pass by those great lessons, those nuggets that are there. Let, not be the, let that not be the case today. So, Father, I just ask simply that you would speak, because we, your servants, we desire to hear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, we went back to the very beginning. I wanted, us to, I wanted to remind us of why it was necessary for Jesus to come. We observed four things, if you remember, a problem, a pattern, a progression, and purpose. The perpetual problem human beings have to disobey God's intent for our lives is what the Bible calls sin. Sin locks us into a pattern of behavior. That pattern of behavior has a progression toward greater and greater evil. And so then the question we asked ourselves back then when we said, why Advent we answered it this way. We recognize that the problem persists, the patterns of behavior are still there, and the progression of evil has gotten worse. But we recognize that the purpose of God is not thwarted by all of this. So last week, we focused our attention squarely on Jesus. We saw him as he was being tempted by the devil, our common enemy. And his singular focus on the Father's will is what allowed him to succeed where we failed. He resisted each of the temptations presented to him and forced the devil to retreat. So we answered the question last week when we asked, why Advent? Because it's only in Jesus do we see how life is lived with God as our focal point. Well, this week... Jesus is going to again enter the discussion, but he's going to be the one that directs our attention. So take, if you will, um, your copy of God's Word. We're going to read from Mark 8, 27 to 37. 
Um, but let me start with the first four verses, and I'll read it for your hearing. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea, Philippi. On the way, he asked, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, so that you know, Mark is Jewish, but his, he is writing to a non-Jewish audience. In, his, in writing his gospel, he chose to dispense with many of the things that would have, have been significant to a Jewish audience, like prophecy, like Jesus' ancestry and birth, and even references to the law. Mark knows his audience. To them, actions speak louder than words, so Mark focuses primarily on what Jesus does and allows that to speak for itself. But in a brilliant move, Mark creates a shift about halfway through the gospel, and he changes emphasis. But instead of Mark pointing it out and drawing attention to it, he lets Jesus do it for us. And this is where our text is. So let's dig in, okay? Jesus and the disciples are traveling, and as they are, Jesus asks them a simple question. Hey, guys, what are people saying about me? Who do they think I am? Now, remember, class, whenever Jesus asks a question, he's not really looking for an answer, right? He always asks questions to reorient us, and that's what he's doing here. Mark is so efficient in the way he presents Jesus, we can lose, fact, uh, lose sight of the fact that up until this point, more than a year, most scholars believe almost two to three years has transpired since Jesus started his ministry. In fact, I'm sorry, why is this significant? Because both the disciples and the people at large have already experienced Jesus. They have seen what he's done. They have heard what he's taught. They have tracked him for months, if not a couple of years. And now what he wants to know, with everything that you've experienced with me, what are your conclusions? You know, the disciples tell him, uh, tell Jesus what, he's, what they've been hearing. Some think you're John the Baptist. Others think you're Elijah. Still others think you're one of the prophets. But let's engage in an exercise today. Let's take a look at what these options are that are presented by the disciples based off of what the people think, and let's just see how they fit. Okay, let's start with John the Baptist. Is that a good option? You guys remember, right? John was the one who baptized Jesus. They lived at the same time. John was killed by um, Herod Antipas, and really it was he out of guilt, who thought Jesus was John resurrected. So what that means is, bottom line, is John the Baptist an actual viable option for who Jesus is? You should be saying no. Not like this, like this, okay? Well, how about Elijah? Now, Elijah was, a critical import, uh, was critically important to the minds of the Jewish people because they knew when Elijah appeared, 
the day of the Lord would be at hand. So he was a big deal, right? But in the next chapter, in chapter 9 of Mark, Jesus goes on to teach that Elijah had already come. And they had done with him what they wanted. They chose to abuse him just as the scriptures predicted. So Jesus, now that you know, Jesus was referring to John the Baptist. So we're stuck in a loop almost. And if, as, as we talked, I mean, as we just said, if John wasn't the right solution then, is he any better an option now because we try to call him Elijah? No. But what about one of the prophets? We know that's a big deal as well, too, because back in the days of Moses, Moses warned the people right before he was about to die. He said, look, God is going to raise up a prophet just like me. And when he shows up on the scene, you need to listen to him. But the question still remains, does Jesus fit one of the prophets? So if you don't mind, I want us to take a look at a couple of quick episodes in Jesus' life that Mark reports for us early on. Let's first look at Mark 1, 21 through 28. Let me read that for you. It says, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, in their synagogue, who, uh, a man who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Now, let me draw your attention to verse 22. For the record, Mark does not record, I mean, he does not record this to disparage the teachers of the law. He records it to show how superior Jesus is to the teachers of the law. Who, by the way, were considered experts of the law. They were well-respected, but when Jesus taught, they, were immediately heard, uh, they immediately heard the difference in two ways. They heard the difference in quality, and they heard the difference in authority. What do I mean? Well, let me give you an example, because though Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus actually taught, Matthew does give us one example. Let me read that for you. You've heard it said, you've heard it that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's not, this is not on the screen, by the way, okay? It's not on the screen. You've heard it said, it was, uh, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Wait, say what? Love your enemies? But do you see what Jesus did? He took the commonly held way to deal with enemies and he raised the standard. Don't hate them, love them, and pray for them. Why? That's how you become children of God, like your Father in heaven, right? That is the qualitative piece of it, right? He is talking about raising the quality of that standard. But he refers to himself as the authority. 
Did you hear it? You've heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is talking like he runs this joint. But let's get back to Mark. In the same episode, as Jesus was finishing up his teaching, a demon-possessed man approaches Jesus and starts speaking to him. Jesus tells the demon to shut his mouth and come out of the money, I mean the man, and it does. What you realize is that Jesus is, run, is running the joint, and the demon agrees. His authority is not questioned by the demon. It is simply obeyed. The people were utterly amazed. Now, here's my question to you. If you guys are familiar at all with the Old Testament, how many prophets do you know did that? It doesn't fit. Jesus is utterly different. So what does that mean? Well, let's go to one other example. Okay, this is going to be a little long, so bear with me. Mark 2, 1 to 12, it says, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. They gathered in, gathered in such large numbers that there were, was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men, came bringing him, uh, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered that man uh, lowered the man that, uh, the mat that he was laying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or get up and take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus is starting to amp things up here. He starts by saying that the man lowered from the roof, he says to him, your sins are forgiven. Now, you know what's going on, right? A whole bunch of challenge flags are being thrown at that point, right? You can't do that. Dude, who do you think you are? But the thing is, they're not saying it. They're thinking it. And Jesus responds to what they are thinking. Now, he's, he asked the question, which is easier, to forgive sins or to heal this paralyzed man? Well, just for the record, we recognize that it's actually easy to say either one. The real question on the table is, do you have the power to do either? And that's what he's going to show here. See, if I say to you, if you do something wrong to me and I say to you, your sins are forgiven, well, you know, that's left to be seen. Right? But if somebody comes who's paralyzed and you have the juice to make them walk, well, that's something completely different. But what Jesus does is that he joins the two. He joins his ability to forgive with his ability to heal. And when he says to the man, get up, walk, 
everybody looked and said, what? We have never seen anything like this. And again, I ask you, do any of the prophets do anything like this? The people are amazed. They praise God, and they say that they've never seen anything like this before. Why, do we go, why have I gone through this exercise with us? Because it provides our answer for this, week's, for this week. When we ask, why Advent? Because what we think about Jesus matters, doesn't it? See, it's one thing to just say, hey, you know, he, he was a great teacher. You know, that's what people, if we ask that same question today, that, that's what they would say. You've heard it before, right? Who's Jesus? Well, some might say he's a great moral teacher. Some would say he's a spiritual leader, whatever that means, right? Others would say, oh, yeah, he was a good man. But it's important for us to remember that we have to accept Jesus on his own terms. We do not get to rewrite his story. He is who he says he is, and he will not be what we want him to be. And we can't afford him to be what we want him to be. Now, you guys remember C.S. Lewis? I'm indebted to him because of this quote. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him, his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would, be either, be, he would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or, he's el or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. Emphasis mine, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. C.S. Lewis is correct, of course. The things Jesus did and the things he said cannot be reduced to a good moral teacher. Nor could it be him being John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. He doesn't fit in any of those boxes. The question is, will we accept him on his terms? Because there is an expectation from Jesus. As you experience him, he expects that you come to a right understanding of who he is. This is why the Jesus asked the disciples about what people say he is. But you know the rub is, he goes from asking what others say to the ones who had been hanging with him for all this time. All right, guys, who do you think I am? And that's the big deal, right? Peter, the spokesman of the group, he, he stands up and says, you are the Messiah. Apparently, Peter answered correctly. Because Jesus says nothing more except to, except to warn them not to tell others about him. Now, why would Jesus do something like that? Well, that's a rabbit hole. We will move on to the noun today, okay? I'll skip that for now. Let's move on to the next section. I think the next section is pretty powerful. 
It reads in verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You, you do not have in mind things concerned, uh, the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. How did we get here? How did the tone turn so quickly? How did we get to an affirmation about the fact that Jesus is the Messiah to Jesus calling Peter Satan? Now, you know, I wrestled with how to sh really share this thing with you guys because, you know, everything in me wants to preach it. So that you guys know, a little shocking, I'm a hammer, and everything to me is a nail. And everything I see, I just want to hit. The guys here are very much like that. When Jesus says this, they're like, wait, what? This is not the plan, Jesus. This is not what we signed up for. You suffering and... Hey, Peter pulls Jesus aside. Dude, you got to stop this. This is not what we're here for. None of these guys signed up for this. And Jesus, amazingly, does something that we've seen before. Haven't we? You guys remember what happened when Satan, or the devil, when he tempted Jesus to bow down and worship him? You remember last week what he did? Jesus did the exact same thing. He said, get away from me. Huh. So the question on the table for us is, when there's a collision of wills, whose will wins? See, what we think about Jesus matters because it has some implications for us. It has implications for the way we live. It has implications for the way we think, doesn't it? Jesus' Jesus's singular focus is doing his Father's will, and he does not allow anything or anyone to interfere. To Peter, he says, get out of my face, Satan. Is a strong rebuke. Peter is willing to interrupt Jesus as he's teaching and set him aside to try and rebuke him. Now, just think about that for a second. This is the same person that when they were stuck in a storm, the storm was going to overtake them. Jesus is asleep. They wake Jesus up to say, hey, don't you care that we're going to die? He gets up, silences the storm, and then looks at him like, wait, what were you guys worried about? And he's going to rebuke him? But you see what happens here, right? It's what we talked about the first week. That stubborn sin pattern always comes back, doesn't it? It's persistent. And it locks our will against God's will. And the question still is, Whose will will win? Jesus is right about one thing in this exchange. 
generally speaking, we don't care about God's concerns. We limit it to our concerns. But the thing is, God's concern is us. Jesus identifies with the human condition, and he is willing to suffer and die for us. He proves that God's concern is for us. Jesus understands and feels the weight of this responsibility. He knows he's going to die and who it is that will kill him. This will not be a raging mob. This will be the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. They will plan his murder. It's one thing when your enemies come at you who are clearly your enemies. They're not like you. But Jesus and everything that he did and taught, these guys should have been siding with him. And they didn't. Here's a question for you. When the world asks about Jesus, are you able to walk them through that process? Like we just talked about? Better yet, when Jesus' will clashes with your will, what happens? Do we want to do what Jesus does? Meaning, do we get to suffer? Because, you know, for Northern Virginians, we don't like suffering. Ed's made the point and has made it well. We like our lives. We just want it a little bit better. Suffering is not what we want to do. Because of that, we don't get to understand what it is that God is trying to show us. You know, when I was early in my faith, I get Peter. I really, really do get him. I understand why he's act like that. Because I remember when I was early in my faith, I was having a devotional time. I was reading through the book of John. And I came to the point where Jesus is in the garden. And the people come to get him, to take him to be crucified. They, he asked them the question, who do you seek? And he, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And at this, he says, I am he. And guess what happens? They all fall back. And I sat there thinking, well, Jesus, why don't... You've got the power to stop this thing. Why don't you do that? Lay down the hammer. Two things he whispered to me. Number one, that's not the Father's will. Number two, if I did that, you would never know me. You'd be doomed to die. That has a way of checking you. That has a way of reorienting who you're dealing with. This Jesus is different. Peter wanted another plan, but Jesus recognized there is no other plan. There's no plan that God has made where I escape death. But listen to what he says in John 12. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verily, truly, I say to you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Here's that purpose of God sticking. It's sticking right out at us. His death has a purpose. The sad thing is what we did caused our death with no remedy. What he does is that he died and he brings us life. He says this, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. You know, I had the privilege of um, 
going to Jerusalem. I don't know, some of you may have made that trip as well. And I remember as we were there, we got a chance to sit in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the guy who was leading our devotion, he talked about Jesus and the day that he was going to be taken away. It was at night, he said. When we were there, it was during the day. But he positioned himself very carefully. He looked down the path and he said, when Jesus saw them coming, it would have been like a fiery serpent making its way toward him. And if you turned around, his way of escape was right there. Now, we know that Jesus would never run from a fight. He, know, he just said he knows that this is why he was here. But what he does is for us, he stands there and he's willing to take the hit, to suffer and to die for us. Are we for him? He dies to free us. Are we willing to die to proclaim him? What we think about Jesus matters. Just to show the implications of what's going on. So in the end, whose will will win? That's the thing on the table for us, right? Just so that we know how serious Jesus is, he turns from the disciples, calls the crowd forward, and begins to teach them. Hear this. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus abruptly calls the crowd to join in the conversation. Notice that pivotal statement he makes. Anyone who wants to be his disciple must be willing to do what he is going to do. Suffer and be ready to die. There is a direct link between what we think about Jesus and the way we live our lives. The suffering priest doesn't sit well, I mean, like I said, it doesn't sit well with us. It didn't sit well with them. But by following Jesus, he changes the rules. Living the way we want means that we'll die. If we decide to die, that means we live. What? That doesn't make any sense. But it does when we realize that's the only way to break the pattern. We can't keep doing things the same way and think that there's going to be a different result. That's the definition of insanity. But it's also a reason why we celebrate Christmas, isn't it? Jesus, the King, has arrived, and he has shown us exactly who he actually is, and it changes everything. He brings the solution to humanity's core problem, the issue of sin, and he provides us I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. So when we ask the question, why Advent? It's clear. What? Because what we think about Jesus actually matters. It affects who we see him to really be. and has implications for the way in which we live our lives. Why don't you pray with me? So, Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be able to look into your word. Jesus, we thank you 
for helping us see how it is, how it is that you have come and shown us the way, but more importantly, what it means for our lives. Christmas means nothing if it doesn't accept you for who you actually are, Lord Jesus. You are our king, and you call upon us to look at you rightly and live accordingly. Forgive us for those ways in which we've made you other than what you are, because we know that that's idolatry, Lord God. So forgive us of that. Instead, Father, open our eyes afresh to the wonder of who you are so that we might follow you and that we might share others, share you with others. Christmas is truly a celebration of the hope that mankind has in Jesus the Christ. Help us not to change that story, Lord. Help us to proclaim you with everything that we have because you are more than worthy. Hear this, our prayer. In your name I pray.